The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host for the podcast. I'm also a student here at the seminary and director of advancement and admissions. So if you have an interest in studying with us, now is the time to apply. I have with me in the studio, calling in by distance, Dr. Guy Waters, the James M. Baird Jr. Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Waters, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Zach. Dr. Waters is also the academic dean for the Houston and Dallas campuses of RTS. He has his Ph.D. from Duke University, his MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary, and his bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania, which I won't hold against him. Being a Temple grad myself, there's a, a, a funny, silly rivalry between the two schools in the city of brotherly love, but I will not hold it against him. I'm happy to have him on the podcast. He's the author of about a dozen books, and Dr. Waters is also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, actively involved in the life of the church at the Congregational, Presbytery, and General Assembly levels. I think I I covered all of that other than family information. Well, of course, he and his family live in Jackson, Mississippi, where he teaches. Today, he is speaking with me primarily about authority in the church and specifically about the push for women's ordination into the office of deacon. The background for our conversation is laid by Overture 29 out of Metro New York Presbytery, in which our brothers in the Big Apple are asking the General Assembly to change the Book of Church order to allow congregations to ordain women as deacons. Other important background elements to our discussion today include the push to open up our permanent committees to non-ordained persons, including both men and women. And finally, it is worth mentioning that this podcast interview is part of a series that we're doing on Confessing Our Hope. We launched a series uh, with a conversation with Dr. Pipa, a special edition of Faith and Practice, where we went through each of the overtures that are really more hot-button overtures coming before the PCA, and we addressed each one in turn and evaluated them, or Dr. Piper did. I just kind of teed him up for that. I have this conversation with Dr. Waters looking at biblical data that uh, is relevant to the the question of women deacons, and then I'm going to continue the series with a conversation with Dr. Nick Wilborn about historical uh, trends and patterns in American Presbyterianism and Scottish Presbyterianism on these issues. And then finally, I'll be interviewing uh, a couple of men, one from the ARP and one from the RPCNA, about their denomination's practices, how it came about that they allow for women deacons at the congregational level and um, and where those men believe the denominations are headed in terms of uh, continuing or discontinuing that practice in the probably more distant future. So all of that's a long-winded way to introduce our podcast today, but Dr. Waters, I'm so happy to have you. Um, and I think our first step should probably be to clarify what the main issue at stake here is. What aren't we asking or questioning when we ask the question, does the Bible support the ordination of women as deacons? No, thank you, Zach. And I think just the way you've stated matters just a second ago is where we need to start, because if we don't ask the question correctly, then we're uh, we're going to sow confusion. So we need to be very clear about what the question is and isn't. Uh, we, we want to be clear. We're not asking, does the Spirit 
give gifts uh, to women in the church. Of course he does. We're not asking, do women serve in the church with the uh, blessing of the New Testament? Of, of course they do. We have that by, by precept and by example. Uh, nor is the question, can uh, and ought women to participate in ministries of service within the church? Again, we have both by uh, precept and by example uh, in the New Testament, uh, stellar women who are doing just that. The question is a narrow one. We're, we're simply talking about office, and we're talking about whether women may hold office or exercise the functions of office. And because there, there are two standing offices in the church since the apostles, that of elder and deacon, uh, the question before us concerns the office of deacon. Uh, so may women hold the office of deacon. And in, in my judgment, which is the, the position of the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, where I have the privilege of serving as a minister, uh, the answer to that question is no. Thank you for that. And so I, I think this is really important to put up front. Um, for whatever reason, men who hold this conviction that Dr. Waters holds and he just articulated and that, and that I hold and that we'll, really will be unpacking in the rest of the episode tend to get accused of wanting to um, disenfranchise women in some way or marginalize them in the life of the church. And that's not what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to be faithful to Scripture. And really, that's that's the question here when we're talking about women as deacons. It's the same question that we would ask uh, if we were to ask, should should married men or single men or young men or old men be deacons? And that is, does the Bible allow for it? And what are the qualifications of the office? And what does that what does that tell us about um, God's desire for how His church is governed and served? So. Uh, that leads me to my next question, Dr. Waters. How does the Bible describe the diaconate? How, do deacons have authority? And if they do, what kind of authority is it? Beyond question, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, uh, among uh, Reformed students of Scripture, is the go-to passage that gives us the qualifications for the office of deacon. And I believe, as, as Paul in the next chapter, chapter 4, 1 Timothy, describes the functions of the elder, so in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, he describes the functions of the deacon. So we, we do have a lot of biblical material to guide our understanding of the diaconate there in 1 Timothy, chapters 3 and 5. I also believe, and this is where, where some students of Scripture are doubtful, but I do believe that Acts chapter 6 records the institution of the diaconate. And I think there's some important principles we can talk about that are enshrined in that account uh, where uh, Luke describes uh, the, the seven men being chosen by the church in Jerusalem, not to begin a brand new work, but to continue a work that the apostles were doing and needed to be taken up by men other than themselves. And, of course, the Lord uh, brings about the, the fruit of that, a great unity and peace in the church, uh, which reminds us that uh, diaconal ministry is not something uh, ancillary uh, to the, the work of the church. It's not something that should sit on the periphery of the church. But when diaconal ministry is done, biblically and faithfully and well, 
it is a very powerful way of bringing to expression what Christ has intended the church to be. Would you say that deacons have a kind of authority based on these biblical passages? Are they pictured as men with authority in the church? I do, and I believe that in, uh, as I um, mentioned a moment ago in Acts chapter 6, that uh, deacons are in fact, the, the diaconate's origin is in fact described in Acts chapter 6, and what the deacons are entrusted with is the work that the apostles have been doing. And so that in and of itself uh, indicates the authoritative character of the diaconate and of the work of the diaconate. As the apostles were undertaking this diaconal ministry authoritatively in the capacity of their office, so deacons who are taking this work uh, from them, who are a, an extension of the, the apostles, as it were, uh, no less undertake the work authoritatively. I believe that that's what Paul has in mind in 1 Timothy 3 when he tasks the church with uh, examining uh, candidates, men, uh, for the office of deacon. They have to meet certain qualifications, both doctrinal and moral. They have to be examined by the church. And when they sustain that examination, well, they then step into office and they undertake this work uh, authoritatively because as officers of the church, they have authority. And I think you see that in chapter 5, where uh, Paul is describing the functions of the deacons within the church. Deacons have to make very important decisions about who is and is not entitled to receive benevolences of the church. Uh, these are not entitlements. One must meet certain qualifications, and Paul's very clear about that in the case of widows. There, there are certain widows who may receive church benevolences, there are others who may not. And that determination, of course, is not left to the congregation, it's not left to the individual widows, it's left to the board of deacons. And that decision and its implementation is an authoritative one. Uh, so when you look at these three passages singly or together, I think the conclusion is inescapable to my mind that uh, deacons are officers of the church, and as such, they hold and exercise authority, servant authority to be sure, for the, uh, the well-being of the church. Now, our book of church order describes the office of deacon as one of sympathy and service. It doesn't say explicitly that it's one of authority, and in fact, Certain commentators have even gone further and said that the diaconate really isn't an office of authority. It is purely one of sympathy and service, works of, uh, works of mercy and facilitating the authoritative functions of the elders in the church. Um, how would you uh, respond? Beyond what you've already said, is there anything else that you would add in response, direct response to the claim that the office of deacon is purely one of sympathy and service, excluding any kind of spiritual authority. I, I think when we look at that paragraph in uh, Book of Church Order, Chapter 7, 
yes, it does a distinction uh, between the elder and the deacon, office of rule, office of service, which is to say that elders do not do the work of deacons and deacons do not do the work of elders. And so when rule is tasked to elders, uh, that's described in subsequent chapters. Uh, governance involving shepherding the flock, receiving, uh, dismissing members, uh, the exercise of discipline, and so on. And so I take that distinction to say that deacons are not involved in that work as elders are involved in that work. However, that is not to say that the deacons hold or exercise authority whatsoever. I think when you look at the description of their work in, in Book of Church Order, Chapter 9, and back of that, the, some of the scripture passages that we looked at, you have to conclude that there, there is an authority that they hold and exercise. Further, the fact that deacons are said to be officers and to hold office, in my judgment, settles the question, because office necessarily entails authority, uh, that there is no meaningful category of a non-authoritative office. To have office is necessarily to hold and to exercise authority. That's what the word has always meant. That's the way that uh, reform polity has always construed office. So when the book says that the deacons are an office of service, they're affirming their authority. What they're defining is the sphere within which that authority is to be exercised so as to avoid any potential confusion with the sphere in which elders exercise their office. And so deacons who have what we would call maybe an executive kind of authority um, do have spiritual authority within that because spiritual authority is one aspect of having executive authority. And, and I think your example that you gave was, was so practical and useful, and that is deacons have to decide and discern on their own without going back to the elders again and again who is fit for receiving uh, help or assistance, material assistance, and and time invested from the church, um, among among you know a group of people? We have scarce resources. We can only divide it up in so many ways, and you know you have ten people all come to the diaconate from the community asking for help. Well, these men have to exercise some spiritual insight and authority in deciding who is going to get the help that that's being requested and. And then at the end of the day, who is not going to get the help being requested for whatever reason, either unworthiness or just scarcity or, or how to prioritize, you know, who's getting... These are practical questions that have spiritual dimensions. And, and so those who would want to rob the diaconate of any spiritual significance or authority, I think, are really looking at the matter in a short-sighted, even segmented out, compartmentalized kind of way that's not really helpful, but really just serves to make the case that women should be allowed into the office. And that leads me to my next question, or this is more of a prompt, actually, a request, a humble request to you, Dr. Waters. Please walk us through the argument for restricting ordination to men only, and particularly the biblical argument. I know we can make more of a systematic theological argument by deductions, but uh, from the Bible argue why the ordination should only be uh, for men into, uh, into the office of deacon. That, of course, is the, uh, the view of uh, 
my denomination, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, that ordination uh, is re uh, restricted to men only. And uh, what would be the, the biblical case for that? Well, we, uh, a classic passage I think we have to start at is 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 12, where, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then in the following verses, which, which carry their own exegetical difficulties to be sure, what is clear in my judgment is that Paul is grounding this command in verse 12 in the creation order. And so the command of verse 12 is, is not provisional. It's not something that's restricted to Ephesus or the first century or to uh, the contingencies of the church situation at the time uh, Timothy was serving. Uh, but this is a standing principle for the church in every age. Now, I think in our circles, all sides uh, will we'll agree, we'll rally round that verse 12 applies to the eldership. And the question arises whether this principle in verse 12 has uh, application as well uh, to the diaconate. And though to be sure, uh, deacons are not tasked with teaching as elders teach, as, as Paul describes it in the next chapter, uh, deacons do exercise authority. Uh, for, for reasons that we've mentioned. Uh, and as such, uh, it would not be uh, fitting, it would not be right, according to that principle, uh, for a woman to be admitted into the office of a deacon. And as we look at examples uh, in the New Testament of um, ordination, uh, in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 13, uh, we consistently see the pattern of men being set apart uh, by men to office, uh, deacons in chapter 6 and uh, elders in chapter 13, as elsewhere. Further, when, when Paul uh, talks about the, the diaconate specifically in, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, uh, I believe that he is restricting the office of deacons uh, to men. Uh, he talks about, uh, for instance, their family management in verse 12 in such a way that uh, requires uh, the deacon uh, to be a man. And in verse 11, though some have taken that to be a verse that warrants women serving in the office of deacon or, or some permutation thereof, I believe exegetically the, the most satisfying reading of verse 11 is that Paul is talking about the wives of deacons. Now, we could ask the question, why would, why would Paul lay down uh, standards, requirements for the wives of deacons? He doesn't do that for elders. And I think chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, gives us a partial answer. Uh, deacons are tasked particularly with the care of widows. That's something that we, we encounter throughout the New Testament. Widows are a, a needy population within the church, and uh, deacons are the arm of the church in caring for her widows. And the sorts of matters that deacons have to take up 
as Paul describes in chapter 5, are going to involve uh, fairly uh, close contact and involvement with these uh, single women. And so one can well imagine that there are going to be occasions when propriety dictates that uh, the wife of a deacon would come alongside him and assist him in his work uh, to uh, carry out, to fulfill uh, the uh, commands that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 5. So as you look at the criteria in uh, 1 Timothy 3.11, all of those suit just that kind of situation, dignity, not slandering, being sober-minded, faithful in all things. So there's an instance where uh, Paul is affirming, in this case, uh, a wife of a deacon, where a woman may uh, assist deacons and in that sense participate in diaconal ministry, but that is a different thing from saying that a woman may hold the office of a deacon or a woman may serve as a, as a, a deaconess in some formal recognized capacity. So in sum, those are in, in short compass some of the main arguments why ordination is, is for men only and particularly why uh, the, the main line of the Reformed tradition has restricted uh, the office of deacon to, to men only. I think when we get to the General Assembly and, um, and as the Overtures Committee is, is meeting uh, to digest these overtures and bring them to the floor in, in some way, shape, or form, either affirming them and recommending them to the GA or, or saying, you know, these really are not appropriate, we, we're not going to recommend them to the GA or whatever, you're going to have discussions that I hope are going to be drawn out of Scripture, just as Dr. Waters has done here. And, and so what he's done should be helpful to you because you're going to hear these arguments again, either in the Overtures Committee or on the floor of the GA, and you'll hear counter-arguments as well. In particular, the counter-arguments will probably come back to 1 Timothy 3.11 and say that Greek word gunekos there is talking about women in the diaconate, and then... You can respond coolly and collectively and say, while that may be possible, is it the most plausible reading of the verse there in, in, in the Greek? Is that the most plausible rendering? And in fact, it's, it's a highly implausible rendering. Uh, I think it's much more plausible to, to read Gunekas as speaking about the wives of deacons who should also be considered when a man is is being evaluated for the office of deacon is his wife going to be able to help him in that in that capacity in those important responsibilities that he will have you know another exegetical uh, difficulty from another passage of scripture another letter of Paul's it comes out of Romans 16 1 to 2 and this is one we hear I think even more frequently than 1 Timothy 3:11 and in 16 1 to 2 of Romans Paul um, describes a woman named Phoebe, and he describes her as a diakonos, as a deacon, quote-unquote, is one way to render diakonos. Servant is another way of rendering that. How do you think Paul uses this term, um, not just in Romans 16, but elsewhere in Romans? And does he use it in other letters? Uh, is it used elsewhere in the New Testament? How does it function? What, what is the spectrum of meaning that this word carries with it? And in light of that, um, what is the most plausible way to understand Phoebe as a diakonos? What, what is most plausible in that context and why? 
It's a good question, and and next to First Timothy three, Romans sixteen is is a go-to passage in these discussions. I'll just say by preface, uh, my oldest daughter's name is Phoebe. I'm a big fan of Phoebe, <laughs> and uh, she's uh, as Paul describes her in Romans sixteen. She's a great saint of God, and um, I'm I'm partial to the argument that she may well have carried the the letter. Uh, to the church in Rome that Paul wrote. She was the bearer of the epistle to the Romans. But in any case, uh, what we have is the description of Phoebe as, as a servant of the church in uh, Cancrea, neighboring city to Corinth. Now, of course, the word diaconus is used elsewhere as deacon to denote the office. That's beyond question, 1 Timothy 3. However, words carry their meaning uh, not in isolation, not independently, but in context. So it's going to be the context of a given passage that will ultimately determine the meaning of a particular word. The word diaconus has a much wider range than the officer we've been talking about. Uh, Diaconus uh, can describe uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Diaconus can describe the Apostle Paul or other word ministers. Paul has even used it in Romans 13 to describe the civil magistrate. Caesar Augustus is diaconus theu, a servant of God. So the question becomes, looking at Romans 16, uh, what does the context tell us that that word must mean? Now, if if we ask the question, does the word diaconus Uh, Does it mean deacon in the sense of officer? Well, that's certainly a possible rendering, but the question is, is that a necessary rendering? Does the context require it? And I'm not persuaded that it does. I think all the context will allow us to say with any confidence or certainty is that that word means servant in the sense that all of God's people, men and women, our servants. Each of us serves the church of which we're part. And I think that if Paul had wanted to say that Phoebe were something more than that, he certainly had the means at his disposal. He, he could have said so in no uncertain terms. So if, if we're trying to a- appeal to passages as uh, divine right Presbyterians, we, we only appeal to Scripture uh, to establish the the building blocks of our polity, our church government. That means we need clear biblical warrant for an office. And I don't believe that Romans 16 furnishes that for uh, a a woman as a deacon. I do believe it furnishes ample proof for a woman as a, a noted, a celebrated servant, lowercase s, of the church of which she's part. But I don't believe that uh, we can carry that argument any farther. I appreciate how you put that, um, how you ended that answer to the question, that Romans 16 isn't merely about what Phoebe isn't. She isn't a deacon. But it does. it is about celebrating Phoebe as a genuine, sincere, useful, and even necessary servant of the church and servant of God in the passage. Boy, what a great point, Zach. And I think, I think it's incumbent on those of us 
who, who recognize the scripture to limit the office of deacon to men only, in the same breath to say that the New Testament encourages, affirms, and celebrates the service of women, even within diaconal contexts, and we ought to as well. So, so to be faithful to the testimony of Scripture, yes, we, we do need to acknowledge the limitations that Scripture places on office, but if we, if we leave it at a negative, then I don't think we've really done what we need to do because overwhelmingly the New Testament is going to commend and encourage women to be involved in the service of the church. Phoebe is a case in point. You, you don't have to be an officer in the church of Jesus Christ to be a faithful servant or even to be recognized as such. And so I think that's a burden we should gladly shoulder. And, and that's, there, there's a whole range of applications in the ministry of a local church. In terms of uh, defending the truth and defending scriptural church government and, and a scriptural conception of the diaconate in the PCA at this current moment, but even in other denominations uh, that have to address this question or deal with it or debate it, and so perhaps the ARP and the RPCNA in the future as they reconsider their position uh, with women deacons, and I know that is an ongoing discussion. No matter where you sit on on that question in those denominations, you have to admit that that is an ongoing discussion in those circles. But whether you're the PCA or another denomination, I hope that this podcast is helpful for giving you uh, some some tools to defend um, a male-only diaconate, even out of Romans 16, 1-2 and 1 Timothy 3, 11, because these verses will continue to come back. But moving beyond that, I hope that that this also is an encouragement to the women that are listening to the podcast, that your role in the church is is so important and is not dictated by whether or not, that importance is not dictated by whether or not you are um, permitted entry into the diaconate, so to speak, to put it in, in those terms. And so then the question becomes for us, whither the women in our churches? Is the church failing women? by suggesting that the diaconate is the place for them to serve, and if they don't get into the diaconate, then then their worth is somehow less than that of men in the church. And I guess on the flip side, are we, are we uh, by, by refusing them access into the diaconate, are we somehow failing uh, women by saying, no, you really shouldn't be deacons? And, and Biblically, how would you go about answering those questions? I know it's a bit more open-ended, so take that in whatever direction you'd like to, Dr. Waters. Sure. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very important question, and I think it um, p- p- picks up well on the, the emphasis we should be heard uh, making, which is, is not a strictly negative one, but also uh, and, and as much a positive one. And I think a lot comes down to how we conceive the diaconate. If, if we think of the diaconate as, well, here's a group of men, and they're going to do work that no one else in the church uh, does or cares to do so that we don't have to do it, they relieve us of the burden of this kind of work, then I think that that's going to result in a diminished view of uh, women and their their biblical contributions to the church. And I, I think it's a diminished view of the diaconate itself because the, uh, the, the, the people of God, we, we have a, a wonderful chapter in the Westminster Confession of the Communion of Saints, 
And it speaks of the way in which the, the whole body connected together, united in Christ and uh, communing in one another's gifts and graces, uh, is, is at work at serving one another. And what the deacons do is to help uh, facilitate and encourage that as officers in the church. So that's why I think we, we see women in prominent positions serving in the church. Um, there's no perceived uh, threat to or competition with the diaconate. And as we saw in 1 Timothy 3.11, uh, we see the way open for uh, deacons to be uh, seeking out and employing women in uh, certain spheres of diaconal ministry in the church. So I think that lays uh, a welcome challenge to our deacons to be identifying godly women who, who are gifted in various spheres of service, to be encouraging them, to be finding ways to, to facilitate them, uh, to enable them to exercise the gifts that Christ has given them, and as they do so, to find proper ways of acknowledging them, of recognizing them, of, of giving them all due honor that uh, any person in the Church of Jesus Christ who serves others selflessly and well uh, should receive from the body. Uh, not to puff them up, of course, but uh, as a means of encouragement to them and, and to glorify Jesus Christ. So I think if we, if we take a, a view of the, the diaconate uh, that's uh, robustly biblical, that is uh, tied into the communion of saints, that is not separated from uh, the broader uh, service that is taking place within the church, but is organically connected to it, then I think we're going to see a, a, a way forward in terms of, of not only how deacons can help serve the church to their full biblical capacity, but also to see ways in which women can be fully involved with the gifts Christ has given them so that they can use them in the ways that Scripture has appointed them to use those gifts, which is what we want them to see. A comment was made a couple general assemblies ago on the floor that if if we explore ways of of getting women into um, even ordained service or, or commissioned non ordained church worker status or whatever that <clears throat> our wives and our daughters would love us more. Well, this is one of the problems. Is that what about the women in our churches that are neither wives nor daughters of elders? They're really uh, feeling excluded even more than, than those who are in the families that, that are really living and, and, and active in the life of the church by necessity, by office of the husband in the family or the father in the family. And this is a, um, a grievance that, that was even shared with me over lunch one day. Um, I was sitting with a man and his wife. He's, he was not an elder, and, and she had some formal function in a large PCA church up north, um, not in my hometown, but in another large metropolitan area. And, and she said, you know, even, even with my position and with the role that I've played, it, it's still really frustrating when I look around and I see that it seems that the women who get the most opportunities for service in the church are really those who are related to pastors and elders. And I think this is one nut that we can crack as, as men who are called to shepherd the flock and to feed the sheep is, is think through how can we encourage those women who are not directly related to us to serve in the church as Phoebe, the, the diakonos, as in Phoebe the servant. 
and or as the widow or as you know the faithful young woman who's growing up in the church um, maybe not from a christian home or 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 whatever there's all kinds of scenarios and you know what scripture speaks to each of those scenarios and and speaks in a in a beautiful way to really encourage the full body to be involved in the life of the church and to exercise gifts and so as we debate women in the diaconate I think we get distracted from the fuller witness of Scripture for the involvement of women in the church. And I don't think that the answer is non-ordained church work, commissioned church workers. I think that's problematic for maybe a, a, an issue for another podcast. But um, Dr. Waters, I, I'm so grateful for your comments and, and your level-headed, faithful exposition of Scripture on these areas. I would recommend um, Dr. Waters' book to our listeners as well, How Jesus Runs the Church, one of many books he's written. This one was published in 2011. It gets into issues of church governance and what he called divine right Presbyterianism, so drawing our church government out of Scripture and applying scripture to how how the church is run and governed uh, rather than inventing our own means of uh, of you know getting in the way of Christ as he governs the church i guess would be a one way of putting it but do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to make for our listeners benefit or or just to to correct anything i've said or anything like that before we close no zach i just uh, wanted to to pick up on your your comments towards the end, uh, let's set aside the matter of gender. The fact is most people in the church will not be called to be officers. And we, we need to be careful because this is something that has nipped at the heels of the church throughout her history of a clericalism that says The only work that matters in the Church of Jesus Christ is what is done by an officer. And without diminishing the importance of office and the fact that church officers do things by Christ's appointment that uh, are, are special and necessary to the church, we can't be without church office, I think it would be a tragedy if we were to conclude that all that is worth doing in the church or the entirety of ministry within the church is, is done by church officers uh, to the exclusion of others in the body. The part of what it is for church officers to be church officers is that they're servants. And as servants, uh, they're, they're helping to, to nurture gifts, to encourage people to maturity, and to get them involved in service. So I think as we uh, take this admittedly uh, narrow question up uh, in in the weeks and months ahead, it's a good reminder to step back and and look at the bigger picture, uh, to to pause for station identification, as it were, just to be thinking about what we're about, those of us who are called to be officers, how we can better serve the Church of Jesus Christ. And I think this uh, discussion gives us uh, a, a unique opportunity to do just that. That is so helpful. Thank you, Dr. Waters. 
a parting word about um, the PCA General Assembly. We are encouraging friends of Greenville Seminary to attend the GRN pre-conference as well as the GRN lunch. We will be there. We will have a presence at the pre-conference. Uh, that's the Gospel Reformation Network pre-conference. Uh, I guess you could look that up at gospelreformation.net. We're also encouraging our friends, and we're announcing this week, in partnership with the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education in Roanoke, Pen uh, Virginia, that's bright. Greenville Seminary will be hosting a food function, a lunch on Thursday of GA Week, having a panel discussion with veteran pastors in the PCA. So both bright and GPTS will give little updates about um, our ministries, our work in educating laity and future ministers. But um, but we're going to spend the majority of our time having a moderated panel discussion with men who have been pastors for 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years plus in the PCA, and um, they're not necessarily big names that would be easily recognizable, but they are men with big experience serving in the PCA. So we would uh, commend that to you as well if you're listening and planning on being at the PCA General Assembly. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Waters, for your time. I, I appreciate it. I don't take it for granted, and I hope that and I trust that this will be a useful resource to men and women in the PCA as we think through these issues. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.